This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the farmer, businesswoman, cook, conservationist, mother, and now writer Helen Ray Banks. She has been cooking and baking professionally and domestically for more than 30 years. And with her husband, the writer and farmer, not really in that order, James Ray Banks, has turned the farm that has been in their family for generations into a global beacon for regenerative farming. No, I didn't know what that was either. In short, it's farming in nature-friendly ways. Now she's put all that experience of food, farming and nurturing into one beautiful book, The Farmer's Wife, a moving and honest account of the daily grind of life on a farm as a woman whose work too often goes unnoticed. It's not represented in many books. It's not represented in many films. And it seems downtrodden as if it's a kind of negative, bad way to spend your life. Helen joined me from the Lake District, where she lives with her husband, four children, six sheepdogs, two ponies, 20 chickens, 50 cattle, 500 sheep and 110 different species of flowers and grasses to talk about the reality of being a farmer's wife, paying tribute to our foremothers and the invisible work of wifedom. Yes, it's that domestic load conversation again. She also explained why she's passionate about sustainability and being part of the climate solution, not the problem. What it means to live a good life and the messy, dirty, joyful stuff of life. We're talking at 11am, so tell me what you've already done today. I have exercised all, all six sheepdogs. I've had them up the fields. Um, James is away in America this week um, with our 15-year-old. So she's she's normally the very reliable dog person and she'll see to them, but I'm doing that. And I've checked around the sheep, which are all in big one, one big mob on this top field here. Um, and I changed the bedding in the shepherd's hut because I have people coming tomorrow. And I've got a friend staying. So she she's now taken over with my two younger boys and she's an artist. So they were going to get some paper out and mess about and have some fun. And I think my mum's coming up to the garden shortly. So I spoke to her. Yeah, it's just a busy, colourful kind of, every day is a bit different. Lots of different things going on. And that's been my morning so far. So when you set out to write the book, The Farmer's Wife, where did you start in your head? Were you thinking, 
you know, I love food. I've been cooking for 30 years. I want to write a recipe book. Or were you thinking, I want to give a voice to all these women, you know, farmers, wives, mothers, you know, women who've chosen to work at home, something else or all of it? When I started off, it was very much around the food. And it was about trying to put together some recipes that the kids would maybe take going forwards into their lives in the future. Um, things that I made regularly that they would save them ringing me up. You know, here's a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's the book. This is how to. This is how I've made these things. But it very, very quickly changed once I started writing. And the first piece I wrote for, I was putting the proposal together through lockdown. And it was about marmalade and that, that piece has made it into the book. And it was about not just me standing on a chair and learning how to make marmalade in a busy farmhouse kitchen. Still didn't really understand it till last year when mum took me through the process properly. Um, It's a very sort of chaotic mess when you're making marmalade and I couldn't understand it then. It was about the piece of writing ended up being me learning about these two women that I'm from and the dynamics between them, the relationship. Mum didn't come from a farming background. She married my dad and hadn't learned to cook or do anything houseworky kind of thing. And she came into my grandma's kitchen and had to learn very quickly because my grandma had moved out of the big farmhouse to let mum and dad move in. But it was still her kitchen, really, <laughs> for a long time. This is your dad's, yeah, this my is dad's your... mum. So mum took on the jobs and learnt very quickly, and I just learned at her feet. And the writing that I was doing was exploring that that relationship. And and I just once I started writing pieces and scenes, the food became secondary. It was always there, and it's there through, woven through the book. But it turned into being a project much about who I was, where I come from, what is a good life, what, how did I want to live and how was I living and what the choices I'd made. And yeah, the farmer's wife, really, all the women that come before me doing this. Yeah, because you, um, I can't remember if it was the podcast I was listening to or whether you actually wrote this in the book, but you wrote about coming from a long line of women who've cared for families and lived on farms and basically who stitch together the fabric of rural communities, but get pretty much zero credit? Pretty much zero credit. It's invisible work, isn't it, generally? And I think it's not particularly invisible in the families that we're living in. We're very much appreciated by our spouses and, you know, sometimes kids. Some kids don't really appreciate anything you do for them. No, exactly. They have to do it themselves. But I felt that society and general culture doesn't, there isn't that voice of somebody looking after the home and caring and cooking and cleaning and kind of holding up kind of everything. It's not represented in many books. It's not represented in many films. Um, and it's seen as downtrodden as if it's kind of negative, you know, bad way to spend your life. You're kind of not living your best life if that's all you're doing with it. <laughs> and I want yeah, to like set it the record straight, really, because I don't feel like that. Uh, you, I mean, like you say, you were a farmer's daughter, but your mum wasn't. And she, your mum wasn't close to her own mum, was she? No, she didn't have, she didn't have the best of childhoods. She had a tricky time with her mum. Her mum probably had undiagnosed sort of depression and probably some mental illness. Um, uh, She was grieving because when my mum was six, they lost her mum's baby sister, who I'm named after. And that was really tragic. Um, So, yeah, mum's mum didn't, she wasn't there for her in the same way lots of mums are doing the mum stuff. And so she she grew up without that model um, to her. Yeah, really tough. Did you, did you did writing the book help you understand your mum more or was that something you'd gone through when you were younger? Definitely writing it helped me understand her more. When when you make a narrative out of bits of fragments of conversations and things, it really did sort of put the puzzle pieces together. Yes, definitely. And 
made me much more compassionate about thinking, you know, I'd gone through a journey with mum, certainly in my teenage years, where I, I didn't really understand where she was coming from and we were clashing quite badly. And we've come out the other side, particularly when I've had children and she's been there to support me. And I've understood how hard it is. And we were already pretty good, but writing solidified all of that, I think, and being able to just reflect on on why we were like that in my teenage years and why we've, you know, come through it. I'm really lucky that we, you know, nice and close and do lots of things together. And you live really close to We do. We do. I've got good family support around. Uh, Incredibly lucky. I don't think it's easy to bring up a family without a, a village, really, in whatever shape or, you know, whatever that looks like. It's incredibly hard. Moving back to where we grew up, James and I, and having both his parents now, just his mum and my parents around, my sisters around, James's two sisters. You know, we're we're all a a busy family. We don't tend to live in each other's pockets, but um, we're there to support each other when we need each other. Because I want to ask you about that because you, when you were growing up, you didn't want to spend your adult life living on a farm, did you? You didn't want to be an adult, uh, a farmer's wife. You wanted to to escape like so many teenagers do. So tell me about, tell me what happened. <laughs> uh, what happened? I fell in love basically. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I had all sorts of teenage ideas about being an artist and I did do my art degree and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, those roots are still in me to create work and have a creative life as well as doing all the, the busyness of family life on the farm. What happened was James and I met when I was 18 and got together and he was going off to Oxford. I finished my art degree and then went with him and I tried lots of different jobs and I worked in all sorts of things um, from call centres to cafes and bars and um, I worked in a hospital getting scans ready as like admin person, office work. Nothing was sitting right with me and I just... I mean, you're told what to, what you're going to be when you grow up. It kind of echoes through me. It's the worst question we can ask kids. It is the absolute worst. The pressure to be something. What about being yourself and being kind and find a way of making a life that is colourful and interesting that you can make some money from here, you know, and pay your bills and and find the things you enjoy doing. That was never talked about and. I did all these different things, but worked with James and it, making a life together, really. That's pretty much, that's what happened. Is that, that's how, why we're here. Um, I threw it all in with him and said, we're a team. We're going to do life together. Yeah. I mean, I haven't given up on anything. I feel I've had, a, I'm, I'm still, lots of exciting things are happening, lots of challenges, particularly with the farming that we're we're doing here. I know it's, it makes every day interesting. Yeah, I didn't particularly set out to be a farmer's wife um, at that age, but now I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing. It's like you were saying when we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we, but we do it as adults too, don't we? Like the first thing very often that people will say to you when you meet them is, what do you what do? What do you do? Yeah. And it can make you feel so small if what you, if the outside world looks on at my life and says, well, that's unpaid and it, it must be quite privileged because you don't work, How, you know, who's paying for your life? And I'm thinking, well, everything he's doing, I'm working alongside him and we're doing it together. And it, maybe he looks like he's the one that's out there earning, but he couldn't be doing that without the support here. Um, and we're working on a farm together. It makes you feel sometimes very small. And I wrote the book in a kind of answer to that. No, I, there's there's much more to this life than sort of a drudgery that people think it, that it must be. Were you angry when you were writing it? Moments of, yes. Yeah, I think stereotypes can can be quite limiting and, and damaging to people. There were certain parts of the book I was writing and I it took me back to when I did feel small and belittled as if it wasn't you know, oh, she's not working. She's got the kids. She's looking after the kids. Well, isn't that like an incredible amount of work? Uh, 24 seven. 
Yeah, well, like there's a comment you uh, you write about in the book. I think when, I don't know whether it was when you'd had Tom or Isaac, so whether it was your third or fourth, um, and you were at a party and someone said, oh, she's had another one, so she doesn't have to get a real mm, job. Absolutely, And yeah. I just thought, no one who, and I, you know, I am not someone who has, has looked after children, but I don't think anybody who had ever looked after children would say that. <laughs> no, no, never, never. It's it as I say, it's twenty four seven, isn't it? And you don't often give yourself a break to you know. It's just that constant being needed and um, in lots of different directions. And it, because it's unpaid, and there's no, I mean, job satisfaction is tricky because you can't, you're up against it all the time with kids. You can't ever feel like you're always questioning: Are you doing a good job? Well, I think as well, it's there's a, a part where you, you talk about French story where the woman has to grow lots of arms to get all her tasks done. Yeah. yeah. And then you go on to kind of outline, like sometimes the children come first, sometimes the farm comes first, sometimes the paperwork comes first, sometimes you know, the housework, housework comes the, first. The errands, all of it. And it's a that's pretty much how my head goes day to day, which task rises to the top to be the priority. And then I focus on that. It leads to a quite a busy and interesting life. Um, there's never a dull moment and I like a challenge. Do you feel like, you know, obviously you're a team and it's teamwork and the whole thing just wouldn't hang together if you weren't doing all your bits. But like you say, you still get the delivery man who's like, oh, is your husband around? Do you feel like you're a team that he's the leader? No, not between us. No, <laughs> it, it changes. <laughs> Your face is so funny. You're like, as if. <laughs> <laughs> I think people on the outside might think that. we Not between us. Um, I mean, we both sort of jostle for <laughs> who's in charge really all the time about things. But we are a team and we... We talk things out. I think on a lot of farms, um, the women are as integral at decision-making as the men are, you know, whatever the setup is. And quite often on some, you know, I know a lot of matriarchal kind of setups that it's quite dismissive to talk about farmers' wives as, as they're somehow less than. Um, <laughs> they're not the ones I know. It's a complete, I mean, it's a, a, it's a complete lack of understanding, isn't it? And it's the society that has evolved where all of the weight is put on work outside the home and what, you know, and this is, I'm just going to massively generalise as usual, but it's like what men do versus the things that like women traditionally do. And I was really interested that you, when you were talking about when you were a teenager, not a teenager, but a student, um, and you were talking about like not identifying with Ali McBeal and the Spice Girls, so you're probably about 10 years younger than me, and feeling like, feeling somehow wrong. Yes, I did. I did feel wrong. I felt out of time quite a lot in, in moments in my life. And it's it's led me to write in the book. It's led me to question lots of things. Like lots of messages in culture are like, have a life that is more meaningful and more shiny, more exciting and raising kids, keeping a home and running a farm. I've questioned it. Of course I have. You've fed all this magazines all the time. People in clean, lovely cut clothes and there's no boot, there's no dirt on their boots. And it's not real. It doesn't sit well with me. Every, you know, scrolling through Instagram and you're seeing kitchens set up that are beautiful and all staged and, and it's not, it's not real life, is it? It's not yogurt down the side of the cupboard that needs wiping up and the bins overflowing and, and the dogs run in with muddy footprints. And, and yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't like a lot of things I was being fed really. And I just decided to, well, I've always just been me and I've had a, I would, if James was here, he'd probably say the same. I've had a, quite a strong sense of myself from when he met me and I've never let go of that. And I think that probably comes from my mum. She's got a strong sense of who she is and we're interested in lots of different things and we've got opinions about things and 
and we care for our families and look after our farms and our homes. How old do you think you were when you kind of developed that sense of self? Because as a fellow ginger, I really identified with that. Yeah, I've never used a bottle on on any of it. I've never touched it with anything. It might turn a weird colour if I did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take it from me, it does turn a weird colour. <laughs> Talking about um, when you were growing up, um, and and this is a thing that actually so many women say to me, but in, in different situations, about um, having to do all the chores at home and their brother's never getting asked to do the chores. Well, my brother's quite cross that I've written that he didn't do any in the book because he apparently he did, but I just, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. What chores did he do? Mm, Evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like the list, please. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was encouraged to do lots of bits and pieces. I encourage our kids to do lots in the house now because there's only one of me and then there's four of them. Um, so the girls do their own washing now. They're 15 and 17. And the boys, uh, Isaac Hoover yesterday, and Tom will begrudgingly feed the dog or do a few basics. He's five. But I think as everybody has to pull their weight just as much outside as they have to do inside. And that's how it works. And it it didn't work when I was when I was young with my brother. I, I definitely know he got away with more. I do. I stand by my book. I stand by Sorry, my book. Helen's brother. Yeah, sorry. We don't it. believe you. That's how, how things were. I do think things, if we're going to change anything, what, how are we going to do that? We, we need to set examples in our own homes as mums and dads, you know, dads doing bits and pieces as much as the mums. And we need to try and model it. Kids don't do what we tell them to do. They do what they see, they, you know, they see us doing. And our kids see a family pulling together outside and inside the difference is I suppose that your you know primarily boys home based. your boys do chores inside the house which arguably your brother didn't and your and before and your mother your mum's brother before that but also your daughters are very very actively involved in the farm aren't they they are yeah very strong capable young women outside working I'm hoping to bring them up to understand what goes on inside the home is as important as what happens outside. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying as a parent to model both things, the um, home life inside and responsibilities and caring for others and cooking for others is is really important. Can you imagine your girls taking over the farm? Oh, yes, quite soon, actually. <laughs> I feel like our 15-year-old daughter's um, practically running the show some days anyway. Yeah, she's training her own sheepdog. And if James is away, if she's at home with me, she will do most of the outside chores and checking the sheep and going to the cows. Yeah, they're very, yeah, I think that could quite happen sooner than, than later. Really? Um, <laughs> Well, do you think that you and James will find it hard to get out of the way? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Said with feeling. No, I don't think we I don't think it's our job to be in their way as they grow up and, and want to um find their place in the world. We're not giving them anything on a plate, that's for sure. They're gonna have to work at it and find a business model that works for them to bring income in. Um and it's tricky because there's four of them. We're gonna have to work out a way of sort of sharing sharing things out equally um but we need to there's lots of conversations to be had about that but I don't think it's our job to be in their way it it's really tricky for a lot of farms with succession planning um and old farmers sticking around and ruling the roost and not giving the younger generation a chance and I think the countryside and food and farming needs young people involved more than ever I mean, you had your own, uh, well, particularly actually your mother had that, really had that experience, didn't she, of basically the your grandparents moving out, but your granddad still being yeah, still, the boss, but not the doer. Yes, the boss, but not the doer. Very oppressive kind of situation. It doesn't lead to very nice atmosphere. I've seen that. I've grown up with it. I've been around it a lot, and I don't want to do that for our kids. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, sustainability. Mm-hmm. What is it? Is it regenerative farming? That's that's the sort of buzzword. Is that the phrase? That's the buzzword that everybody's using. It's sort of going back to like traditional mixed farming that 
now we know a lot more about soil health and I mean, the crisis with biodiversity loss, um, climate change and global warming. We know so much more. And when you know more, I think you have to do better. And on our farm, what we're doing and trying to do better is to manage the, particularly the, the fields, not just the edges and plant the hedges, which we've done an awful lot. We've done miles of hedgerow um, replanting and not just putting the trees in, but consider the, the fields as a whole and the soil underneath because everything comes from healthy soil. All, all life and food and, you know, for nature, for the livestock, for us, for healthy food, it's coming from good, healthy soil. It should look like rich chocolate cake when you get into there. And it should have a good cover of grasses and plants and different species on there, like a thatch, we call it. So in basic terms, we're trying to manage our livestock in a way that is mobbed up into a big group and then it's mo- it's grazes, pulls grazes quickly and then moves on and gives the land lots of rest. So we're trying to be part of the climate solution rather than the problem as farmers here. And we're trying to inspire other people to maybe learn about this as well. I'm thinking a few things. And one of that is, does that make any money? So does it make any money is a great question. Um, I hate myself for asking it, by the way. but um, We have cut our inputs to the farm business dramatically by doing this kind of farming. So we're not, what does that mean? We're not Sorry. spending money on bought-in feed. We're making very right. little hay now. We're just doing a minimal sort of crop of hay. So we're not spending money on contractors coming. We're not spending as much at the vets for any antibiotics and treatments. And that means that the livestock that we can rear is off grass, which is grown from sunshine and rainfall. So we're not relying on expensive inputs to the farm. So that means we can, we are, and we are turning a profit with a small family farm. We sell pedigree livestock to other farmers and we have some meat that we sell to family and friends locally from our freezer. We're not getting down the meat route because we're busy with the writing stuff. And it's always a juggle of, you know, how we can do all these different things. Um, Maybe one of the kids might come in and take on doing something like that in the future. One of our daughters is trained is a chef, so she's she's getting down the food route. But making money, we host different groups and visitors to the farm. I mean, purely farming, we're turning a small profit from it without extra. We run the two separate businesses with our writing work and our farm. It has to stand on its own. We don't, you know, subsidize it in any way, shape or form. But we do need general public to understand that regenerative farming is beneficial for nature, for animal health. And it it means that the products we'll be selling will be more expensive than the cheap chicken and, you know, out of a shed and the pork that's raised in, also in sheds. And so beef and lamb, and where well, we eat hog it and mutton rather than we would eat lamb, but it is going to be more expensive and that's, there's a reason why. Um, it's slower grown. Not only an incredibly healthy, nutritious thing to eat, helping nature and putting biodiversity back into into the landscape. It's, um, I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree with you, but it's hard, isn't it, at a time when everybody's so skint. Everybody is so skint and we're everybody's heads down and working harder and longer and we need structural change as well as the public to kind of shift their way of thinking about diet rather than grabbing something that's going to be a quick fix. Maybe choose something that's more, that satiates and fills you up for a bit longer. And for me, that's protein. That's definitely eggs and bacon in the mornings. Or it's, it, it's good meat and a little of it will fill you up for longer rather than hitting the carbs and the sugar, fatty, snacky, things that don't keep you going um, and fill up on veg, good veg. We need much more support for horticulture in the UK, but we do need structural change, don't we? They say it's food poverty, but it's just poverty and it, it needs to be addressed. It, it's We're in a mess in the country. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah. I haven't gone into that, Sam. I, I, I <laughs> no, I mean, we would be here all day we if we started on that. <laughs>
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Owning the farm and, and being on the farm and, and what you've been talking about in terms of being part of the solution rather than the problem. How has that affected your approach to cooking and food shopping? It means that I, I'm much more aware of what we're growing and producing than I used to be and less reliant on supermarkets. And you know, I just still go and I wish I didn't, um, but I get a local veg box that's grown not far from here and get that regularly. And a lot of my cooking is, is just simple, simple suppers, nothing complicated. It's meat and and vegetables, some fish now and again. And I, I just try and keep it, keep it simple and try not to go to the supermarket for, for, you need groceries, you need staples, you need jars and cans and tins and washing powder and all that basic stuff. But the, the focus for me is on really good meat and good vegetables. Do you pay more attention when you're in the supermarket to where things have come from? And- yeah, I do notice. Um, and I'm, I would say I'm not 100% amazing at this. I still pick up some stuff that's flown in from wherever. And I wish I didn't. I wish I could get away from that. Um, I think it's too readily available. The cost of, you know, those beans that have come in from Kenya, we don't know the farming that they've come from. We don't know who's picked them, who's whether they've been paid properly. 
I'm so guilty of buying those. They were that was one of the things that was in my mind when you were talking. Green beans, those yeah. bloody beans. Yeah. 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 My friend's just brought some. She's grown on her allotment in London. They're lovely. And she's brought she's grown cucumber and she brought me some courgettes and some of her own potatoes. We're having a feast. She's got an allotment, so she's, you know, dedicated to that. But not to, I, I understand not a lot of people have access to land to grow things. But if they did grow something, they might go a little bit of the way of understanding how hard it is to grow things and then maybe look for British produce and support British farmers a bit more. That's what I would hope rather than flying it. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I think the supermarkets have a lot to answer for and, and they should be paying British farmers properly for the produce that we we grow. I mean, you don't pull any punches about how hard the farming life can be. Have there been times when you've wanted to walk away from it? There have been times where I tear my hair out and think it's all a bit too much, but I've never wanted to walk away from it. I've never got in the car and driven and said, I'm, I'm out of here. No. Um, because for a long time you were pursuing, it was James's dream, wasn't it? I mean, you talk the several times you say about the magnet pulling him north back to the farm. It wasn't that I didn't ever want to live on a farm. I didn't want the struggle. And I don't know if I've conveyed that. Um, I think that struggle that I knew to get here of those several years of living on a, what essentially is a grand designs project with not enough money, no cameras, just mud and three young kids wasn't appealing. That was, (laughs) <laughs> strangely, strangely. <laughs> and I, I I am better at him thinking ahead and visualizing what that's going to look like he will think ahead and see the finished thing and then not think what the middle bit looks like and just think oh well it'll be okay we'll get there we'll get there and I see the messy middle and think a lot of that I'm going to be doing and he hasn't thought about this <laughs> so I didn't want that struggle and I lived it and we did it and it looks beautiful now. Don't get me wrong. It looks incredible where we are now. The farm is in rude health. The garden's gorgeous. We've just finished the driveway last, like two months ago after a building site of like 10 years around the house. And it's really, really nice. But it did have a, it was tough. It was, it was a challenge. And I think part of writing that out was me sort of reflecting on that and going, yes, it did. It was bad. <laughs> um, it was hard in the snow, <laughs> no, no electricity when that, that really bad storm hit and we were here and we hadn't finished things and yeah, really challenging, but you come out the other side of these things. And I think that's what makes your life richer. What point do you think, can you remember a point where you thought this is my, this is my dream too. This is our dream. I totally took it on in the planning meeting when we got our planning permission. I totally took that this is us feeling on about the farm and then went through the messy middle. I would say in 2020, when I first started writing pieces for my book, I was spending a lot of time walking around the farm um, on my own, probably listening to a lot of your podcasts, Sam. and all sorts of other things, audio books. And I think, gosh, wow, this is, this is incredible. We live here, pinch me. This is amazing. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. It's full of nature. I mean, we've got hares literally hopping through the garden or a red squirrel on the wall top regularly. We've got cuckoos, we've got curlew, um, heron, flocks of little birds, um, all the time. Everything's just, it was so incredible when I started just seeing what was right under my nose. It's that pausing in the doing. And then I was like, yeah, this is, this is brilliant. Probably love it more than James does now. I mean, you've written a lot about feeling invisible, not within the family and the community, but within wider society. And that feeling that you and your work and women like you have no value. But now in your mid-40s, how, how has that changed? I'm confident in myself. I think I've always, had, like I said before, had that sense of self. And I feel happy and settled and partly through writing the book. I've just let that go of feeling invisible and said that it doesn't really matter now. I'm, 
this is my me, this is my story, this is who I am, this is what matters to me. And maybe I'll, I think I wrote the book I wanted to read maybe a few years ago when I was kind of a bit unsettled, thinking that it wasn't worthy enough. My goodness, um, I'd just love to pat her on the back and say, hang in there, it's going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what drives you? Is that what gets you out of bed every morning? Um, I think it's love for the kids, love for James. That drives me and keep uh, doing doing the best we can here. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I would say all of that together. There's a, um, something that you write that your dad said, and it really rang a bell with me because my uh, gran, my nan used to say this as well all the time, that like you make your bed and you lie in yeah. it. And you, yeah, exactly. It's so unhelpful. It's so unhelpful. Um, You have a different take on it, don't you? Yeah, he was probably told that when he was. Yeah, I'm sure he was. It was one of those sayings that gets, gosh, when things are bad. Oh well, you make your bed, you lie in it. Get on with it. I mean, one of the worst times it was used was with James's grandma, and she actually left his granddad for a short spell. She'd found out something about him that she didn't want to know, and. Anyway, her father had said to her at the doorstep, no, you make your bed, you lie in it, go back home. I mean, that's pretty horrific, isn't it? Um, To be turned away from your family home. It's been used in such negative ways. I have a different take on it in that my, the way I, I get up and I make my bed every day is a different day. It's a different project. It's something to get stuck into, whether it's I'm catering for a group on the farm or I've got jobs to do that around like with the sheep or with James or it's in the house or it's or it's on the writing or it's speaking to you on a podcast. There's something every single day I can make my I'm in charge here. And I think that's what farmers have is a sense of agency on their own, you know, on their farms, we can be our own boss really and I I love that there's um before I ask you the questions I always ask um I just one thing I want to well not really ask you but just say because it just really really was so fascinating it's literally in the last couple of sentences of the entire book before you get to all the useful recipes and stuff at the end um which is that the word mundane comes from the latin word I don't, my pronunciation might be, I'll be wrong, mundaneness, which means of the world. I mean, when it, it just, it kind of just shifted everything because we see chores as mundane, don't we, as drudgery, as something to be avoided at all costs. When you think the word mundane is of the world, it's everything. What is a good life if it's not caring and doing the, the tasks, the little things that for our loved ones, feeding them, nourishing them, keeping a clean home, making things pleasant. And generally just, I I listened to um, an episode you did recently with Marina Benjamin. And she said there's something so rich about being entangled and enmeshed with the messy, dirty, joyful, loving, sad, everything all enmeshed with life. And I think that's what, it, it just shifted my perspective, understanding mundane as of the world made me feel very validated that everything I, it's not, it is mundane and it is important. Yeah. That mundane it's isn't a negative. negative. It's used as a negative, but it isn't. And I, I'm interested, it's in, so interesting. you know, like my art background and things, I'm always interested in flipping things and looking under the surface and what's the layers beneath things. And, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know when I think you'd have time, but do you do any artwork anymore? I think that's probably going to be my next project that I'm going to try and get into making some pieces again. I did some embroideries for my degree show and it's a while since I picked up the needle and thread, but I think there's, there's things I'd like, you know, to weave in and say and create pieces again. Do you still have the work you did for your degree show? Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh, you should put it on your Instagram. (laughs) I'd love to see it. It's quite (laughs) subversive. It's quite sort of subversive stitch. Um, yeah, it's quite shocking some of the pieces about violence and undercurrents of things in society. <laughs> it's a bit grim, some of it. Well, I'd, re- I'd really love to see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, questions that I always ask. What's your emotional age? So I was thinking about this, and I think it's probably much older than I actually am. 
I think it's probably like, I've always felt a bit older than I am. It could be 80. I don't know. <laughs> it could be something crazy like that. <laughs> I'm not wishing my life away. I just feel like I've confident and happy in myself as if I would be when I, when I'm that age. Does that make sense? <laughs> it totally does. It totally does. Do you see yourself still there when you're 80? Uh, around the farm or somewhere locally? Yes, absolutely. Making pieces of work or writing or doing things and cooking for groups and grandkids, maybe, who knows? Just a busy, interesting, colourful life. Yeah. Give us a book recommendation. Oh, so it can be a spam. book that's meant a lot to you. I must have when, about you know. 10 books that have meant so much to me. Circe by Madeline Miller. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. The Unseen, the, the, the Other Side. I'm interested in the women's stories that aren't told and that, that was beautifully done. Know My Name by Chanel Miller was powerful. I loved that yeah, memoir. And... I've got Crane in Mart by Michelle Zorn. I read that recently and that just blew me away. That was outstanding about all Korean food and her relationship with her mum as her mum was dying. Um, really powerful. I love Educated by Tara Westover. Uh, yeah, I've just finished reading 12 Moons by Carol Giles and I really loved the way she used the moon through each month. It was about looking after her four children, her four daughters as a single mum. That was really good. I'm looking, one of the things I love about, I'm recording, you know, having the video so I can see you when we record the podcast is nosing into the background. And we're not close enough for me to see any of what any of the books are, but there's miles of books yeah, behind you, which I love. recording up in our office, which is at the end of the sheep shed. And it has those great big Ikea cubes and they're all stacked full of books, both mine and James's. And the house is literally propped up with books as well. I love nosing around like you do on people's bookshelves because I think that's that's their mind. That's what's in their mind. Those those titles and those stories and those influences are that's, you know, what's inspiring them. Um books are amazing. And I'm, I'm ah, blown away that Faber picked my proposal up and went and decided to publish it and feel very lucky. Well, and it's a beautiful book as well. It's really, what advice would you give younger women? Um, Be kind to yourself. Definitely be kind. And that's giving yourself a break and don't try and do it all. Know that you need help. Ask for more help than you think. Yeah. Don't try and do it all on your own. I think I did that a while and give yourself a break. Go for a walk on your own. (laughs) If you've got young kids, Find some way of leaving them for half an hour and and just, yeah, be kind. Who is your old bird role model? She'll kill me for saying, because she, she's not an old bird, but mum definitely. She's a great role model. She's held on to who she is and she's fun to be around and she works incredibly hard and does a hundred things for all of us all the time. What's your superpower? I think I'm a, I was wondering about this. I think I'm a good container. I'm able to contain a lot of different things going on at once and a lot of emotions and try and hold it all um, without breaking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm quite patient. Um, And that's got better with age and more kids. I wasn't particularly like that with my first, but I definitely am much more patient and able to hold a lot more. And I would say that that's pretty much my superpower that I can, I can deal with a lot. Um, that's a hell of a superpower. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and probably an essential one. I think it's fairly essential living yeah. my life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last one, how many fucks do you give? Well, not so many about little things like appearance and getting older and wrinkles and all sorts of little things like that or going to birthday parties and being seen, and you know, doing all these things that people expect that sort of superficial things about the big things, I give loads of fucks. Drives me wild that the government isn't supporting food and farming in this country properly. I'm really passionate about leaving the land in a in better health than than it was when we took the farm on and how we can leave leave the world in a better place for our kids and grandkids. So there is a world. And about inequality, about oh gosh, so many fucks. Oh thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. I've 
absolutely loved talking to you. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's been a joy and and a real honour to come on the podcast of something that I listen to. I think podcasts have been hugely important to me in finding where I am at 45 and looking back on my life and lots of the conversations with the guests you have have kind of been in around my head when I've been writing as well. So the work you do is incredible and keep going. It's it's brilliant to listen to and thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. Well, I wasn't going to ask you this, but I am going to ask you now. Are you have you started to think about menopause? Yeah, where are you at? Where on am that I at? So spectrum? my youngest is 5 and I think having a baby at 40 maybe has masked things a bit and nothing's really changing at the moment. And but I am very aware of it. I've got friends that are going through it. Yeah, so it's it's on the horizon. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that I won't lose all my marbles too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Able to get some good creative, use my energy that I've got now and not have You might not lose them at all. You never <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> it's probably going to happen. But I'm, yeah, I'm aware of it. And I think the conversations you have with women about this inform me, who's on the cusp of things, and all the books available now, it's a much more talked about subject just like miscarriage wasn't ever talked about was it menopause has never been addressed and it's it's vital we as women we all need to know much more and what's available to us and what can help us and thank you for opening up those conversations as well oh thank you I didn't ask you so you would say that but thanks for saying it (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode you might also like the episodes featuring Marina Benjamin and Tamsin Kalidas. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters podcast extras and more.